Okay, so if you have a Bible, open it to Philippians. Um, we are, some people cheered in the first service, we are finishing our series on Philippians this morning um, on gratitude. And uh, it's basically been like, what, three months of me saying, be grateful, you know. Um, and we're finishing this series uh, this week, and then next week we're going to be talking about some Christmas stuff. And then we're going to be starting a new series in the, in the new year where we're going to be talking a little bit once again about sort of just, just sort of our kind of vision as a church and uh, kind of the importance of the gospel and what God's called us all to do as the church. And we want to kind of come back to that on a fairly regular basis um, and, uh, and talk about it again and again. So I would encourage you to come, uh, to come then as well, and, that'll be, and then we've got something else after that that'll be cool. So, um, so if you have a Bible, open it to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 14 through 20. And um, I'm really excited about this because it lines up very well with what we're doing today with the special offering that we're taking because this really is a passage where Paul is talking to the church in Philippi saying, thank you guys for sending me support financially to make it possible for me to do what I'm doing. And that's exactly what we're going to be taking a special offering for this morning. So um, it's kind of cool. I'll put it up on the screen here. Um, Philippians 4, 14 through 20 says this. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me, giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And because he's Paul, that's not actually the end of the letter. He even says more after that, after he says amen. But we aren't going to talk about those verses. Um, so here Paul is saying to the church, thank you for supporting me. Thank you for financially supporting me and what that has meant. Now, um, there is a direct correlation between gratefulness and stuff and having stuff and the stuff that we have. There seems to be a direct connection between those two things, but it isn't the connection that we would usually think. Uh, one would think that it makes sense that the more stuff you have, the more grateful you are. Uh, that's the argument that my kids make a lot, right? Um, and uh, that would make sense to us. But it turns out, and we talked about this last week when we talked about what Paul said about contentment, that the truth is it seems to be that there is a connection between gratefulness and the stuff that you have, but much of the time, in fact, most of the time, uh, those who are the most grateful do not have the most stuff. They simply have a way of looking at what they have. And oftentimes, the most grateful are those with even the least amount of stuff. One of the things we said about, about Paul was that Paul said, I had known what it is to be content when I'm in need and when things abound, which is really unusual. Most people never experience both, and he does. Um, and, and what we said was that uh, really, um, uh, I know in my experience, it is those who have much that struggle with contentment much more than those who have little uh, because we rely on it and we begin to find our security in it and it begins to be what we're all about. And so just like when I uh, am happy that it's not raining because I like the sun and I also 
And I also don't need the rain. I don't need it to like live. Um, I've got other ways of getting water and things like that. Uh, a farmer would feel very differently who relies on rain to feed their crops. They depend on it. When you depend on something, you cannot really be content without that thing. And so we see that there's a connection between the gratefulness that we have and the stuff and the possessions and the things that we have. So it would make sense, though, to say that the, the mark of a, of a generous heart, that if a, that if a person truly, uh, sorry, a grateful heart, that if a person truly were grateful, that one of the ways that you would see that gratefulness is through generosity. Uh, this is something that you read about in the Bible. It's the idea that a really grateful person is somebody who is able to let go of things and give what they have. A grateful person is not someone who holds on to what they have so tightly because they love it so much. Paul is talking about this idea of giving sacrificially. Now, the first thing that he says here is he says, uh, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. He calls this a partnership. He says, what it is to support me is to be my partner and I need partners, and there was nobody else who was willing to enter into partnership with me except for you guys, and that meant a lot to me because it made my ministry possible. Paul's ministry would not be possible without the support of other people. He functions like a missionary. He's a traveling evangelist. He goes around, he tells people about Jesus, and uh, he knows that if he asked them for money, that would probably affect the message being received. In fact, at this time, it wasn't uncommon for people to go around talking about things that you should believe in and then saying, now please give me some money. And so if Paul had been asking for money, people would have said, oh, he's just one of those people. I'm not going to listen to what he has to say. Or the fact that Paul is attempting to begin new churches, and new churches don't pay for themselves right away. He needed support from other people. And so Paul is one of many, many people that we see throughout time, throughout the history of Christianity, who have said, I'm going to endeavor to do this thing, but I can't do it by myself, and I can't even really pay for it by myself. I need you and others to be able to support me, and he calls that a partnership. It means that you're in this thing together. You're actually doing this thing together. You're, you're a part of the same thing. Paul was a tent maker. He did what he, did what he could to support himself, but especially when he's suffering and in chains and in prison, he needs support from others. Paul was in, uh, under house arrest. He actually, he says, you gave me my full payment um, and then more beyond that. They gave him what he needed to pay for the house that he was in and to pay to live where he was uh, because he needed money for those things. And then they gave him even more beyond that. They sent Epaphroditus with this money and they gave it to him. And what he says to them is he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases your credit. Here's what, he, here's what he means by that. He says, I'm not actually just asking you for money because I want money. He's saying money isn't the end goal. What I want is I want the fruit that, produces, that increases the credit, which is a fancy way of saying I want more people to come to know Jesus. That's why I'm happy. I'm not happy because I got money. I'm not in this to get money. This is not the most effective way to get money, to do what I'm doing and just ask churches to support me. What I want is I want more people to know about Jesus. This is the goal. Okay, so... Here's the good news. The good news is that anybody who follows Jesus has been given the same mission, has been given the same call, which is go and make disciples of all nations. And that right there, the increasing of that fruit, that is the thing that we're in partnership together to do. We have this same mission together. It's interesting that the way that God seems to have set things up is that he uses us to help other people. We need one another. 
We're not really set up in such a way, even in the church, that like I can do all of what I'm called to do just by myself. We need other people to partner with us. There was a point several years ago where Ellie and I were um, in the middle of our adoption with our son Tegan, and it was taking years, and it was costing a lot of money, and I was talking with a friend of mine about, um, he was kind of asking me about some of that, and he was saying like, um, he was saying like, you know, why don't you like ask people to, you know, help you pay for your adoption? And I was like, I'm not going to ask people to help me pay for my adoption. I don't like asking people for money. That's, that's, I'm like an adult, you know, I want people to know like I can do it all on my own, and I'm fine, and I don't need anything from them. And, uh, and he was like, well, yeah, that doesn't sound like prideful or arrogant at all. And, and he said, he said, you know, I would like to help you. Like, I mean, I, I would actually like to, and, and, and I know how big of a deal this is for you, and I know what it means for, for this child that you're going to bring home. Um, and so, and, it's, and, it, and the adoption, it kept stretching out longer and longer. It kept being delayed. The cost kept going up. There, kept, there just was more and more and more. And so it was around the time of year, and people were sending out Christmas cards, and we were going to send out a Christmas card and kind of write some updates on there so people knew what was going on with the adoption, because it had been so many years. And, and, he, and he said, why don't you just ask in the Christmas card? And I was like, you want me to ask in my Christmas card for money? He's like, yeah. I mean, I like that's ask people to do this thing with you because I think people really want to partner with you in what you're doing. I think they really want to support you in that. And so we did. And um, and I'll never forget like the response that people had. Um, I'll never forget the guy, the really close friend of mine who walked in my office and handed me this huge check. It wasn't like a big check, but he handed me a big check, uh, money that I didn't know that he had. And, uh, and he gave it to me, and we're both, like, crying like babies because, like, I didn't think this was going to happen, and he was so excited that he got to do it, and he was like, you know, my wife and I want to give this to you, and we want to support you in what you're doing. We're so excited about it. We want to help you guys out, and we want to see this kid come home, you know, and be with your family. And it was, like, the most amazing thing ever. And then when the adoption was, was kind of finalized, and we brought Tegan home, and there's all these people there with us, and they're excited. They're, like, at the airport and stuff. All of these people were really, really excited because they got to partner in something that needed other people to partner with it. We got to a point where we realized, you know, I don't, I don't think that we can do this on our own. We just can't. Uh, we feel like it's what we're supposed to do, but we just can't do it on our own, and that's actually okay. Sometimes it feels wrong to us, the idea that you would need to partner with somebody, the idea that you would need to depend on other people. That's the way that God has set up the church. That's the way he's set up. He's like, I want all of you to go out. I want people to be reached, and everybody's going to have their role because there's so many different ways that we play our role in reaching people for Jesus. Some people ask for support because they can't ask for funds from those that they go to reach. Some people ask for support because it just takes so many resources and so much to do what they're trying to do in the part of the world they're trying to do it maybe. Some people need help training people and equipping them so that they can go out and teach the gospel in other places. Some people need physical labor. You send them teams of people. All, all of them, all of those that are trying to bring the gospel to others, they need prayer. And they're like, please pray for us. Seriously, though, it actually matters, and it does something, and it means something. So would you please be praying for us and what we're doing? And we see the same thing played out here. We see some people in this church bringing the gospel to children. We see some people bringing the gospel to teenagers. We see some people bringing the gospel to those who have responded to it and yet still struggle to live it out in their lives every day because that's the way the gospel works. And there are some that bring the gospel to senior citizens who can't even leave their house anymore. And that's the only way that they're going to be able to receive it and hear it and be encouraged by it. That we see it even within the church, the idea of partnership. But you can't have partnership unless you agree on what you're trying to accomplish. You can't have partnership without a shared mission. I was praying about this church in China that had recently, um, 100 of their members had been arrested and taken to jail. And the pastor was very wise, and he wrote out a statement 
on uh, religious disobedience, basically, and why that mattered. And he said, if I, my wife or I are ever taken into jail and we've been gone for more than 48 hours, I want you to release this to the world. And I want people to read our statement on why we do what we do and why we worship and why I will never say I am guilty to any charges that are brought against me. And one of the things he says, I was kind of praying it, one of the members of his church said, they said this yesterday, I think. They said, Lord, today we worship you in police cars because this was their first Sunday being gone. We worship you in police stations. We worship you in detention centers. We worship you in prisons and we worship you in homes. We have no other goal except to worship you alone. We ride in buses heading to police stations as though riding down the road to Zion. For you tell us, Lord, that you are looking for worshipers who worship you in spirit and truth. May you be pleased with our worship. We have nothing to offer you but our hearts. We offer them up sincerely to you now. You know, the church, uh, the church in China is just exploding right now with new Christians. The gospel is going out and like people are just coming to faith in great numbers. And, uh, and many would say like, why is that happening in a place like that? There doesn't seem to be an obvious reason for it. It's not because the circumstances are easy. It's not because they have freedom to even worship and do what they're doing. It's not because they have a nonprofit status for their church. It's not because they have an abundance of pastors. It's not because it's easy to be a pastor. I was at a Starbucks a couple of years ago and I was praying with a guy and afterwards somebody walked up to me when the guy left and said, it is just so encouraging to see people praying out in public and they gave me a gift card. And I was like, yeah, it's hard to be a pastor in this town. You know, <laughs> people just don't know what I go through. They just don't know how hard it is to be me and to do my job. Right? Right? Is the church exploding in China because, because of that? Because there's people everywhere looking at Christians saying, good job, keep going, you can do it. It's not because they have better Bible translations. It's not because they literally have more Francis Chans in China than they do here. The Chinese church is exploding because they have the most important thing a group of human beings can have. They have something called clarity. And that clarity has brought them the Holy Spirit. They have clarity, meaning they understand exactly what they're there to do. They understand exactly what the mission is that God's given them. They know exactly who their enemies are. And they've said it in the statement that they wrote. They said, our enemy is anyone who is getting in the way of someone else hearing the gospel because there is nothing more important in this universe than a person hearing the gospel and responding to it and then having eternal life. Like there is nothing more important than that. And there is nothing worse that could happen to a person than for them to not respond to that or not hear that message. And there is nothing worse that you can do than to get in the way or interfere or slow down the process of somebody being able to be exposed to that gospel and to hear that message. They have clarity on that. They know why they exist. And so why is it harder for us? Even though we have more resources, we have more government support, we have more trained pastors, it's harder because we don't have the kind of clarity that they have. We don't have the ability to see as clearly what it is that we're actually called to do. There's this game that we play with our kids when they go swimming. It's a very easy game. You throw something in the pool and you tell them to go get it. It only works when they can swim. So I'm gonna encourage you to do before that. But we were at, a, we were at like a hotel pool a couple months ago and um, Ellie was like, uh, she went over to where this like eating area was and grabbed a bunch of forks and just threw them in the pool and was like, go get them, you know? Brilliant, right? And they went to get them. 
Uh, that game's pretty easy if you can see through the water and you can see what you're going in for. Uh, that game would be impossibly difficult if the water were cloudy and if it were murky and if you couldn't see, because all you could do is just jump in and start feeling around for stuff. It would take you way longer. And that's the truth of any objective, any goal, anything that you want to reach. If you can't see it clearly, it's going to take you a lot longer and it's going to be a lot harder and a lot messier of a process for you to try to reach it. Our greatest danger today is not seeing what it is that we're here to do and not being able to focus on it. Is anything that gets in the way of that for us? I've been, I was talking over the last couple of weeks, I promise this is the last time I'll talk about this. I was talking over the last couple of weeks about anxiety and that I've been having a lot of anxiety lately and over the last few months and, um, and I, I was talking about kind of how it even played out as I'm looking at these last few weeks in Philippians and seeing, um, kind of seeing what it is to, because to have anxiety is basically to have fear. It's you're fearful of things and you're kind of consumed by that fear. You're afraid of losing things. You're afraid of getting things. You're afraid of all kinds of stuff. And I've talked to a lot of you over the last couple of weeks about the anxiety that you have, many of you. And as we've talked about anxiety, one of the common things that you hear is that the way that you deal with anxiety is you face it. It's the only way to really deal with it. Any good counselor will say, okay, so what? They'll say it a lot nicer than that. They'll make you feel better. But they'll essentially say, when you say, I'm afraid this thing's going to happen, they'll go, so what if it happens? What if it happens? Let's just go to that place for a second and let's say, what if? Is God still good enough? Is he still okay? Will you be okay? Can you trust these things that you believe about him? And it makes you realize, you know, how much you do or don't believe some of the most basic things that you say that you really believe. And so what you do when you're dealing with anxiety is you face it. You confront it and you look at it. And one of the things I've realized over the last several weeks is I've been trying to do that more and more. It's the funnest process ever. As I've been trying to do that more and more is, is none of the things that I'm afraid of, none of the things that I'm afraid of happening, that I'm afraid of losing, that I'm afraid of going through, none of those things could really keep me from preaching the gospel, from advancing the gospel. That there's actually, in fact... The harder my life got, I would probably be more effective in the ability to do that. And we know that's true of other people's lives, right? Um, we say the more that you endure oftentimes and go through and suffer, the more God can be seen in you, the more it focuses the clarity that you have, and the more people can actually come to faith. That's a crazy, crazy thing, but that's exactly how it works. That's what suffering does for us. That's even how we learn contentment is oftentimes to lose quite a bit, to only recognize that we could be content with less than we were when everything was going super well. And that's supposed to be an encouraging thought. It's supposed to be encouraging to go, all the things that I'm afraid of, all the things that I get really worried about that really freak me out and keep me up at night, that those aren't things that can really ultimately rob me of what matters the most. And they aren't going to get in the way of the thing that I'm here to do the most. They aren't. We could take comfort from that because we have this shared mission. People say, you know, what if you won the lottery? Wouldn't you tell everybody about it? What if you got a new dog? Wouldn't you go? You're not supposed to tell everybody when you win the lottery, by the way. That's like a thing. You know, don't tell people. Get a lawyer, get them to get the ticket for you, and keep it anonymous. But people say this a lot, right? Like, wouldn't you, if you won a million dollars, wouldn't you go tell everybody? Uh, if you got a new puppy, wouldn't you go show everybody? If you got a new kid, wouldn't you tell everybody? We definitely do that, right? Um, 
And uh, I mean, not, you know, if it's your kid, you do that. You know, like, hey, look what I found. You know, found this kid in the store. And the, it's like, yeah, we could come up with analogies like that all day, but the truth of the matter is, like, if you, if you knew somebody, I mean, if you knew somebody who was, who was dying, who was perishing, and, and, and you actually had the thing that could save their life, then yes, you would tell that person. Yes, you would share it with them, even if it was hard for them to hear, even if it was hard for you to figure out how to do it. Because you can't just walk up to people and tell them about Jesus most of the time like you could tell somebody about a new puppy that you just got. That often doesn't go well, especially in a culture where people are like, I've heard of Jesus, I know who he is, and I'm not really interested in talking to you about him. But the truth of the matter is that we lose, we, we, we fret and are anguished over the people in our lives who are suffering and dying from physical things. People who are suffering and dying from things that we lament over the fact that we cannot yet cure. We are, is there a worse feeling than we've had than to watch a loved one be sick and suffering and know that we don't have the cure for what it is that they have, that there isn't something that our society yet can do to help them and fix them and heal them? And the good news is that we, we do have the cure for the most important thing for the thing that many and all people ultimately suffer from. This is a really, really big deal. This is the mission that we have. And if you have this shared mission, if everybody in the faith, in the kingdom of God, everybody who says, I'm a follower of Jesus throughout the world, says we all have the same job, then we partner together. And we need each other in order to do it well. And that's the truth of it. And so Paul says, you've entered into this with me, your partner's with me, and then he talks about the thing that they give, and here's what he says. He says, I've received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. He calls them a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. He calls it an offering and a sacrifice, and that's important. Paul's talking about the fact that they sacrificially gave, which means they gave. To sacrificially give means that you give of something to the point to where you now feel that thing gone. You feel the loss of that thing. It's not just giving out of the abundance of what you have left over. Sacrificially is saying, I'm going to give, and I'm going to help you, and it's going to cost me, and I'm going to feel it. Now, there were all kinds of offerings that were done throughout Scripture, and especially the ones that we read about in the Old Testament. There were many different kinds of offerings, but, but the offerings, the ones that God commanded his people to give, the sacrifices, which was actually, you like took an animal, and you lit it on fire, and you burned it, and the smoke went up, and the idea was that God actually found the aroma of that thing pleasing because you were giving that sacrifice to him, and it was pleasing, it was for him. And there's all these different reasons why they did it, but they all ultimately came down to one thing. All sacrifices, all offerings were about one thing. They were their people's way of saying, God, please be here with us. Please remain in our presence. Whether I'm atoning for sin or I'm giving you an offering of the things that I've collected in my field or I'm giving you an offering on a festival to remember the good things that you've done, all offerings are ultimately the Israelites' way of saying, God, please stay here with us. Stay in our midst, stay in our presence. We want you here more than these things, more than the sin in our lives, and we want to sacrifice. We want to give up things that matter to us so that we can experience you. And in the exact same way, when we're partnering with the gospel, and we're called to sacrificially give for that, we do it knowing that it goes away. It goes away. Just like the animal is like, is like burnt up. It goes away. It, it does not, we're not doing it to benefit ourselves. There's a cost to it, and we feel that cost. It changes, it changes our, 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 our ability to live at a certain level. 
It changes the things that we have and the money that we have and the freedom that we have. It, it affects those things. But as we do that and as we give that thing up, we are also saying to God, God, I do this because I want you here. Not because I'm trying to earn something from you or, or pay for something from you. Obviously, a burnt-up animal or some money that's given is in no way at all equivalent to the value of God himself being somewhere. But it means something, that sacrifice. It means to give to the degree that you have to actually say no to other things as a result of it. Your standard of living is affected. Your number of possessions and your comforts, your financial security are affected by the needs of the gospel. You give more time, and that means that you don't have to, I don't know if you know how time works, but you give more time, and that means that you don't have time because of what you've given. That means that you give of relationships, which means that you can't spend time in the relationships that you already have as much because you're giving in other ways in relationships for the sake of the gospel. If you've gone through Philippians with us, you've seen that Paul really likes the people in this church, really likes them. You know, he loves those Philippian people, those, those, those people in Philippi. And, and he's telling them all the time, you're great, I love you guys, I love hanging out with you, I miss you guys, I miss you guys, I miss you guys. You almost get the sense that Paul would rather be in Philippi with these people than in jail in Rome. <laughs> but he's in jail in Rome. And he went there willingly. Why? Because he sacrificed even the relationships that he had saying, I want to be with you guys, I want to go to church with you guys, I want to be, I started this church, I love it but I'm going to go, and I'm going to sacrifice. And Paul doesn't sacrifice money as much as he sacrifices all the other parts of his life in partnership for the gospel. And it's something that we're called to do all the time. And this idea of sacrifice is most difficult for those of us who have gotten into the routine of thinking that we just compartmentalize out our life, right? We say, I'm going to give you this much money, and I'm going to give you this much time, and I'm going to give you these relationships, and I'm going to give you this day of the week, and, and I'm going to give you this morning, and I'm going to give you this evening. And now everything's all set, and everything's all good. And then you start talking about sacrifice. It's like, oh, come on. Give me a break. I'm doing so much. I'm already doing a lot. And the goal is not to try to outgive one another, so that we can earn something or be better than each other. But we recognize that, that what it means to partner ultimately means to sacrifice. And it means that we live in a way that's different because of the things that we're giving up, because of the things that we're choosing to let go of. And what he says to them is something that we all really kind of need to hear he says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He says, God will supply your every need. Why does he say that? Because he's telling them, thank you for giving of yourselves. And why don't more people give of themselves? You may not know this about money and people. Why don't more people give of their time? Why don't more people give of their resources or give of their money or give of their relationships? Why don't more people do that? Because... They're afraid, I'm going to blow your mind here, that they won't have enough for themselves when they're done. And Paul says, God will supply everything that you need. I trust that he will. And you have probably already seen that he will when you give. You see, the math of sacrificially giving, the math of like supporting these partnerships that we have, the math doesn't totally add up. And a lot of what we've talked about in Philippians has been math that isn't add up totally well. I'm gonna, I'm gonna break it down for you. My son's learning word problems right now. I'm getting really good at these. So I'm gonna give you guys a word problem, okay? Here we go. This is the math 
for what Paul's talking about. Try to track with me here. If you are at a first grade level, you should be able to, because that's the math I know right now. I have $100, okay? I need $100. You probably would all agree with that if you want to go to the movies. There it is right there, right? <laughs> Unless you go on Tuesday or something, you need $100 if you have $100. So I have $100. I need $100. Someone else, uh-oh, needs $50. If I give, here's the crazy part, I won't have enough. Because if you remember, I need $100, and I have $100. God says I will have enough. This does not add up. This does not really add up, does it? I will pray about it. That's a good idea. I'll pray about it. He must be talking to the guy over there who has $150. He's probably not talking to me. This is the math, the kind of math that we read about. Just like when Paul talks about contentment and says you're never going to believe it, but contentment isn't tied to the more stuff that you have. All over the place, throughout the Bible, you encounter these math problems that just don't make sense. And it's God's way of saying, here's how I work. If you give, you will have enough. I will provide what you need. And we, many of us know what that's like. Many of us know about the check that comes in the mail that you don't expect, about the refund that you forgot about. Many of us know about the room full of returns that you forgot about, I don't know. Many many of us know about the the way in which sacrificially giving puts you in a place where you went, I don't don't actually need $100. Need is turned into a different thing for me. But Paul assures the church, he says, When you partner, as you've partnered with me and you have given, it has helped me so much, please know that you will still have what you need, that God will provide for you, that he hasn't asked you to give me something only for him to forget you and what it is that you need. This is the promise, that as you support each other in this way, that God won't forget about you that you don't have to look out for yourself like other people who don't believe in God have to look out for themselves. That you don't have to only think about your own bank account and only think about your own time and think if I don't guard those things, no one else will. Paul says God will guard those things and God will provide what you need. What Paul's talking about here, and it's so important, is he's talking about what it is to have a grateful heart. He's, he's showing us a grateful heart. He's talking to the people of this church in Philippi who themselves really do have grateful hearts and what that thing looks like. What does it look like to have a grateful heart? It says, because I'm content in God, I am much more free from needing to be content in other things that I have. This means that these things can come and go and I will be okay. This means I am free to give away more. I am free to have good days and bad days. I am free to care about other people and not myself so much, which is hard. I like caring about myself, but the truth is the more I think about myself, the more self-absorbed I become. What it also means, and this is huge, is that God can actually show up and you can go, there you are. I see you moving. So many of us desperately want to see God moving. We want to see him show up. We want to see him do things. And yet, 
we are unwilling to step out and put ourselves in a situation where we depend on him. I was talking with a friend of mine yesterday who, he lives in Mexico and he's a missionary there. And we were talking about the challenges that come from stepping out in faith and the fear that often comes even in the midst of that thing. He had a successful business that he owned and ran uh, when he moved his family to Mexico and gave all of that up. And as we were talking, it's a very real reality that he's going, the years I'm giving to this, I'm not getting back. Like, like these, are, these are valuable years that people work and they save and they invest and they plan and they provide for their family so their family can provide for their family. And I'm foregoing those things right now to do this thing that God's called me to do. And there's a part of me that almost every day thinks, if this isn't right, if I heard God wrong, if I'm doing the wrong thing in the wrong way at the wrong time, or if God just doesn't show up, then I'm left with nothing. Whereas a lot of my other friends who are spending all their time living their lives as though they don't need God to show up and do anything, they'll be okay when God doesn't show up. That that's a real fear that a person feels. And that's exactly what we see in the Bible from all the people that were trying to follow Jesus. Was Jesus kept saying, you know, step out of the boat. And only one person got to walk on water. It's the guy that steps out of the boat, right? We see how many other people aren't willing to do that. Say, I don't know that I'm willing to put myself out there. I don't know that I'm willing to take this step to give this much, to do this much, because God would have to, honestly, God would have to show up and, and he would have to do something pretty crazy in order for that to be okay, which is one of the hardest things for us to do. But it is the most basic component of faith is stepping out and saying that. I, I was thinking about this this last weekend uh, about how the pastors and I how, and some of the leaders of the church about a year ago, we sat down and we began talking about our church and we began talking about just feeling this sense of desire to see our church take some steps of faith. We felt like our church had been in decline for a while. We felt like we weren't seeing the number, the number of people, really the people coming to Jesus that we wanted to see coming to Jesus here in the church. And so we started to look at like, well, what are we doing as a church and what are we investing our time and our resources in? And we began to realize that we were, we were pretty comfortable doing many of the things that we had done for a long time and that we were proud of those things as a church and we were good at doing them. And so we began to feel like, well, in order for us to actually probably do what we feel like God's leading us to do, that means taking some steps of faith and not doing things that we're really good at doing, that we're really well known for. It means trying to do some new things. It means creating some space and taking this year of rest that we're in as a church right now from programs. And the crazy thing about it, now looking back on that, is that even though we're only a little ways into that process, I can't think of a time that I don't sit down in a meeting with somebody who's involved in leadership of this church, a pastor or a committee or something, that we're not talking about the way that God has shown up and the things that God is doing. And we're not going, that had to be God. That has to be God. Because it's not this awesome thing that I know works so well. And it's not this awesome thing that historically has been a great thing that we rely on. And it's not even because of me, because I honestly feel like I don't know what I'm doing right now. And I feel like I did before. Now, that's not to say that God wasn't working and moving in this church before, because he clearly was. But we recognize that there's nothing like stopping and looking and going, I saw God do something there. I saw him work there. And it was because sort of a grateful heart led us to a place of saying, like, can we step out and can we do something that requires us to trust him? Ultimately, above all else, gratefulness is freedom. The ability to be grateful in our hearts for who God is and what he has done 
And, and what that does for us is it gives us a kind of freedom and liberation, the ability to let go of so many other things that we think that we need. Not because we're forced to or because we feel guilty or because we're obligated to or because it earns us something with God, but simply because we're grateful. And one of the things that we have said again and again and again is that one of the most defining marks of a person who follows Jesus is not their ability to follow rules and not their ability to cut everything out of their life and not their ability to have self-discipline to rival the most religious person that they can find. One of the most defining marks of a person who follows Jesus is gratitude. In a world so, so void of gratitude, it is being a people who are actually grateful regardless of the circumstances who can be content in a world filled with like zero contentment. I think it's so awesome that this like lines up with this, uh, with this Christmas offering that we've been talking about for a while because um, I can't think of a better way to respond to kind of the gratefulness that we have in God than to do this, to partner uh, with these people. Um, just to remind you guys of what this is for, um, we're taking an offering this morning and this is, kind of a, this is like beyond really the normal tithes and offerings that we do as a church to kind of keep operating and doing what we're doing. And the first thing that this goes towards is this is going to go towards a church plant called Spacious Grace in Eugene that's being led by a family, the Lees. And you saw, many of you saw Brian Lee and his family come and um, Mitch Lee come and uh, you saw them talk about the ministry that they're doing there in Eugene. Uh, you also saw them talk about their growing family and the fact that they have six kids and they're about to have two more and they don't have a vehicle that fits uh, all those people. And so one of the things that we want to do is take an offering and we want to give them some money so that they can buy a new vehicle. And we also want to take some money and we want to give it to them monthly so that Mitch can spend less time working and building cabinets as a cabinet maker and so that he can spend more time with the people of Eugene. And if you saw the photos, if you heard the stories of what they've been doing, they really are spending and taking every opportunity that they have to build relationships with people who don't yet know Jesus, people who would not walk in the doors of a church. There's also a ministry in Honduras called Projecto Manuelito. And what they've done is they've been incredibly effective at... Uh, building and maintaining these children's homes for children who, are, children who are orphans. And as these kids come in and as they live there, they're cared for, uh, they're fed and they're taught, they hear the gospel of Jesus. Well, they've been so successful at this that families and children have come from the, uh, from the villages, uh, children have come from the village nearby uh, who have parents, who have families, but still come because they can get food and because they can have something to do for the day. And so there are now so many children Many that they want to send home each day with food for their families, that they've begun to run into problems just having the resources to provide the food and to provide some of the basic things for these kids. And they absolutely don't want to have to turn anybody away. And so the other part of what we're doing is we're taking part of this offering and we're just giving it to Projecto Manolito and we're saying, use this just for the needs and the supplies that you have directly for these kids. Um, as we talk about these things again and again, we've said this many times, like I, I would struggle to find something that is more worth it, that is more valuable for us to be able to give towards sacrificially, um, to partner with these people and these organizations that clearly God is blessing and clearly God is using who are in need of resources. And the last thing that we would ever want is for the work that they're doing to stop or slow down, for anything to hinder the advancing of the gospel because they don't have enough resources when we know that we do. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna sing and worship and as a part of our worship, we're going to bring those up. I'm welcoming you, if you have an offering, to just bring it up during these next few songs. We have this, uh, this, this manger here, and uh, you can 
you can bring it up and, and is this called a manger? It is, right? The manger isn't the, the set. I should know that. We should have learned that in a class somewhere. Um, I just get confused. I'm sorry. Uh, you can bring it up and you can place it in this manger as really an act of worship as part of the time that we're going to be worshiping together. Um, let me pray and then we'll spend some time in worship and, and giving an offering to the Lord. Father, um, we are so grateful for who you are that you're a God who has given us so abundantly beyond what we ever have uh, been able to earn, deserve, more than we've ever even asked for. Father, we uh, pray that, that we would all recognize the part that we have to play in this mission that we're on together, in this great commission that you give us to reach all people with the gospel, to make disciples of all nations. Father, our prayer is that through our worship, through our offering, through our lives, God, that you would be honored, that these things would be driven by gratitude, gratitude for who you are and what you've done, God. We thank you so much, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Father, those words are the perfect words for us to sing because we, we recognize that there is something about you that you alone have the ability to have such an impact on a person's life that you cause them to be completely transformed and changed into someone who is so joyful and so grateful and so passionate, Lord, that they do the kinds of things that we read about from Paul. That they, that they are like this pastor, Wang Yi, in China, Father, uh, willing to be persecuted because you alone are so good and that to be close to you and to live as Christ is so amazing that those who do it well experience such joy and fulfillment, Lord, that they're willing to live their lives these way, this way, Father. Many of us, we confess that we don't know how that feels and so our prayer is that above all else, God, that we would be able to experience you in that way and that we would be willing to let go of some of the things in the way of us looking to you alone, Father. We pray, Lord, also above all else, we pray for those who are persecuted right now, God. We pray for this hundred church members in China and the thousands and thousands of people around the world who worship you and advance your gospel and share in this mission that we get to be partners with, Father. We pray for those in Eugene and those in Honduras, Father. We pray for those all around us who are boldly going forth with the gospel. We pray that you would protect them and that you would bless them, but we pray the very thing that we know they want us to pray more than anything, and it's not for their safety and it's not for their comfort, but it's that the gospel would actually be received, God. We pray that above all else, Father. Help us know how to be partners in that, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great week.